Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me, your guest. You may recognize my mug or my voice as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. After 250 plus episodes, four years of interviewing major celebrities, business titans, authors, and thought leaders, movie stars, we realized that the most downloaded or listened to interviews weren't always the big media mogul, but in fact, they were people like you and I that had remarkable, but perhaps even relatable journeys into the C-suite. And so we spawned this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations, where each week we have conversations with people that have made it to the C-Suite. Perhaps you're looking to grow your trajectory into the C-suite or better deal with people who work in the C-suite of your company. And today our guest is in fact Mark Suzman. He is the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, not too shabby, and is joining us today from location in Seattle. Mark, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Mark, truly an honor to work with you. Obviously, you've worked very closely with both of the Gates as they themselves have been through some turmoil but have kept this foundation as a juggernaut uh, in terms of philanthropy and changing the lives of countless millions if not billions of people around the world. Today I'd like to talk a little bit about the work that you do there and some of the things you've learned around some of the social issues the world is facing and how people that maybe do or don't have billions of dollars can actually uh, improve people's lives. Your journey to the C-suite has been nothing less than remarkable. You have an undergraduate degree from Harvard University. You earned a PhD from Oxford. You are in fact a Rhodes Scholar, which is something very few people um, have accomplished. And it's just a remarkable journey. You worked at the UN for many years. I've told a bit of your story, but Mark, would you indulge our listeners and viewers and kind of rewind several decades? Uh, I believe you are South African by birth. Talk a little bit about your journey, your education, your professional background, and perhaps most importantly, what led you to become the CEO of what is perhaps by most measures the most influential philanthropic foundation in the world? Yeah, well, it's definitely not a career trajectory I expected. If you had asked me, uh, graduating high school in South Africa, what my career aspirations might have been, uh, I would have told you maybe lawyers, maybe business, maybe something in journalism, but I would never have crossed my mind that I would be uh, running a large philanthropy many decades later. And the journey I went on was actually leaving South Africa uh, to end up coming to the US for uh, my undergraduate education. So at Harvard and then uh, ending up going on a journalism track. And my early career, I was in journalism in South Africa initially with a local paper and then with the Financial Times uh, working in uh, South Africa and the UK and then the US. And that was an opportunity where I get to engage with some amazing people. You know, as a journalist, you get to talk to leaders, lots of C-suite leaders and lots of others. So, I, you know, I learned by listening, but I kind of liked being the guy who was writing the story and I could pick and choose uh, what I did and when I did. But uh, I then had an opportunity to go and work at the United Nations, uh, which I thought was going to be a brief temporary opportunity, ended up being uh, seven years uh, under the leadership of the then Secretary General Kofi Annan. And I'd found I'd almost shifted careers. I'd, I'd moved into more of a sort of policy making, some managerial uh, roles. And so I was trying to figure out what to do next. And that was um, 
the year that uh, Warren Buffett uh, announced his partnership and gift with Bill and Melinda Gates. So it was a big expansion of the Gates Foundation. And I kind of got headhunted to come in and run a small new program around uh, advocacy uh, for them in non-health areas. It was primarily a health foundation. And then to my own surprise, and I'm happy to come back to some of the details, I, you know, now nearly 16 years later, here I am uh, running what is the world's largest philanthropy. Uh, but at each stage, it's, there's a lot of serendipity, and I certainly wouldn't have expected that trajectory uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And it's a, I think I'm a good example of how you can respond to opportunities and lean into them and uh, find yourself in a place you didn't expect, but I'm very happy to be here. Mark, thanks for sharing that. Expand a little bit on the trajectory of your career. You know, I'm guessing some of your career was very deliberate and intentional. You mentioned that other parts of it was the result of some serendipity, some earned, and perhaps others maybe timing or, you know, your network or such. As you look back at your career, what advice would you give to other people who are trying to take control of their career? They're trying to be more intentional, more deliberate, less accidental, and recognizing that there is serendipity. Any any career principles that you've learned that you think would be helpful for others to perhaps take under guidance? Yeah, well, I'd say two. One is just wherever you're sitting, develop whatever skills you have because they're going to be useful. You, you might not realize that, but, you know, it turns out I was developing sort of writing and social networking skills as a journalist, which I didn't think were going to be great tools to help me in management because I wasn't considering, but turn out in retrospect to have been that. Whatever role you're in, I think there's similar opportunities like that. The second is the one you just talked about. It's timing. Opportunities come up and you have no idea when they come up. I ended up, uh, I was actually all set to go to law school after college, partly because I was avoiding what was a, a whites-only draft in South Africa during apartheid South Africa. But the year I graduated was the year Nelson Mandela got released from prison. And so suddenly I didn't have a draft and I was able to go back and start working as a journalist. Mm. Had I graduated a year early, I probably would have gone to law school. Similarly, when I jumped from uh, journalism into the United Nations, that was a timing thing where I was being recruited to come and help the new head of the UN development program for what was supposed to be a year's leave of absence from the newspaper I was working on. But it ended up being in 2000, which was a great moment at the UN where they launched this effort and I became part of the launch called the Millennium Development Goals, which is how I got engaged in development, which was a set of goals about reducing poverty, improving health, and they got enormous momentum and suddenly I got excited and energized by that and stayed uh, through the end of Kofi Annan's term. When he stepped down uh, in 2000, at the end of 2006, I was again a little caught. Was I a lapsed journalist? Was I a UN bureaucrat? Was I a development professional? And then again, somewhat out of left field came this opportunity with the Gates Foundation. So with each step, you kind of Find an opportunity to leave and see if your existing skills uh, can actually take you in a slightly different direction. Mine is definitely unconventional, but, you know, the two ones are learn from whatever you're doing and try and strengthen, you know, broaden your skill sets of social interaction, writing, whatever it might be, and always keep your eye out for opportunity because it may come when you least expect it. Mark, we'll talk about the mission of the Gates Foundation in a few moments, and I want to talk about the, the UN uh, experience as well. Before that, I'm going to ask you to check your humility for a moment and talk about what it means to be a Rhodes Scholar. It's a term we hear a lot about and rarely do you meet one. 
Will you talk a little bit about what it means to become a Rhodes Scholar? What did you learn from that? That's a very esprit de corps kind of group. Talk a bit about that experience. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it was a great honor to be a Rhodes Scholar. I was a Rhodes Scholar from South Africa. There are obviously many from the U.S. Uh, and, you know, there's one uh, thing. is It's a scholarship that calls on the people who go to uh, respond to public service in some way, to be a global servant, to think about leadership, the origins of the a scholarship from uh, Cecil Rhodes, even though he himself was a imperialist racist, uh, he thought a lot about leadership. And this was about trying to identify and build leaders, in his case, from across the British Commonwealth in the United States and Germany, who would come and learn and grow together. And so I always did feel a sense of, you know, after being selected, a sort of responsibility. So what are you giving back? Is there something, if you've been given an opportunity like that, which is a full scholarship to an amazing university, uh, there is a, definitely a sense of obligation everywhere is looking and say, am I, is what I'm doing in some way contributing to a greater social good? So that was one element. There is a second element, and there's a somewhat uh, facetious uh, line that is used for Rhodes Scholars, where a Rhodes Scholar is someone with a great career uh, behind them. Um, uh, it, because if you have the potential of, you know, you, once you're a Rhodes Scholar, you've got that, but you often don't, uh, aren't able to, live up to it or, or drive uh, into the kind of outcomes you hope for. And so that's something also that I think, you know, it's both a pressure, but uh, um, you know, was an incentive for me always to just think about where I was at each stage of my career and whether it was sort of fulfilling that potential because, you know, society had given me uh, free, full scholarship uh, to learn and grow and was I giving back appropriately. Mark, pivot to the UN for a moment. After you graduated from Rhodes with a PhD as a Rhodes Scholar, I graduated from Oxford, sorry, uh, with a, 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 the Rhodes Scholar designation, you joined the UN and you worked under Kofi Annan, Secretary General. What are some of the lessons you learned about diplomacy and bureaucracy and systems and strategy, getting stuff done in obviously very unstable political environments with life or death scenarios and you know, corruption and funding and all the politics of the members, anything you can distill down to perhaps the person like me, a common leader in an organization, leading a team, trying to get things done and build culture, mission-driven. What are some lessons you might translate from life at the UN into everyday life as a leader inside of a company? Yeah, well, uh, maybe I'll start by answering that question. So interestingly, when I started at the UN, or in my early days at the UN, my uh, wife was working, had come out of uh, management consulting and was working at GE Capital. And the times when GE is now um, a somewhat more challenged company, but at the time was widely regarded as the world's best run large private company. And I was working for what was generally regarded as the world's most incompetent large bureaucracy. And uh, what was interesting as we would come home at night uh, and compare our days was actually there were a lot of similarities. I think when there are big complex institutions that work across geographies, that work across people, that work across sectors, there are common lessons and challenges that do. And uh, so within the UN, what is the thing is, yes, it is essentially bureaucratic. It's designed to be bureaucratic. It, it creates big institutions and, and people working across the world. But how do you get to outcomes and results? That's, that's a sort of thread that's coming. 
how do you actually take the machinery of the people you're with, the institutions with, the resources you have, and turn it into a measurable outcome? And for me, a measurable outcome in those cases would be you know, resources to help, uh, say it would be development, um, agricultural development support in particular countries or uh, health support, whatever it might be. But you're trying to measure outcomes in terms of did things actually reach people? You don't get, you don't have the metric, and it's a similar challenge in philanthropy that you have in a pure private sector where you have the clear bottom line that you know, are you making a profit or loss. So you have to have these proxy metrics and really keep the discipline on focused on real measurable results. So that's you know probably the core uh, challenge. And you realize to do that, you've got to stay really really focused. It's so easy to get diffuse. You can be pulled down in multiple different directions, and you need to you know pick your objective, stick with it, uh, pull together the people to achieve it. And that was a key lesson that if you can achieve that in the UN, you can probably achieve it anywhere. Mark, let's talk about programs and initiatives. I'm going to give you credit for popularizing in some way this concept called streetlight moments. I think maybe you attributed it to a colleague of yours at some point, but these are really about uh, perhaps programs that are well-intended but maybe miss the mark because they're not well-aligned with the recipient. Talk about the concept of streetlight moments and how all of us can, can learn from that. Yeah, so the streetlight moment is essentially, you know, often you'll take a solution that will focus on what is in front of you, what you think is, you know, the street light is illuminating and you think it's going to help. So you might uh, stick with agriculture at the moment because food security, the world is in a big food security crisis. And that's some of what I've been working on in the last week is you might say, hey, we've got a way to create a new crop that's going to grow incredibly productively and make rice transformed for uh, millions of people across uh, Africa, and we've grown it in a lab, and we funded it, so our funding will fund it, and now we just want to give it to farmers, and they're going to take it out and show you how it works. And then what you discover in the industry that you didn't bother to check how it tasted. It tasted terrible. You know, you have women doing it saying, we're not going to cook this. I don't care how productive it is. You know, in the end, food is something you eat, not just something you grow. And so that would be an example of where you've got to think through all aspects of it. You're not just creating a tool in this case, right, or a health product if we're working on a vaccine or a family planning product uh, or a financial service product, because these are the kind of things we work on all for the aim of the world. You've got to think about, in this case, the customer, the consumer, the person. How do they eat? How do they consume? How do they learn? Where do they live? You know, are you actually getting the voice of the people you're working with and trying to serve involved. And that's been an evolution for the foundation. Uh, uh, Bill and Melinda would be the first to admit that as a, in our early days, we thought we could just generate a lot of big, cool solutions here in our Seattle headquarters as public goods. And somehow the world would take care of making sure those reach people in need. And we realized the hard way, it doesn't work like that. You've got to build together very concrete partnerships. You've got to think about the needs the moment you've got to customize it around the countries and communities you're in you've got to find feedback loops when you don't have the automatic feedback loop of the market you've got to find proxies uh so that's the core of the concept mark let's expand on that because i think it's a fair statement to say every ceo has this challenge of maybe perhaps really smart well-intended strategies and their job is to get 
result at the end of the row, so to speak, whether it means the frontline employee or perhaps in your case, you know, people that are literally life or death away from their next meal because of what is now an unprecedented food crisis through much of the world, uh, whether it be pandemic-related or inflation-related or environmental-related or the Ukrainian you know, war with Russia-related. Uh, how do you overcome sitting in the Seattle office as the leader of the world's largest philanthropic organization? How do you make sure that the ideas that you're thinking about designing end up with rice that tastes good and women in Africa will actually eat it and might save their lives. Where, where, what, where does it break down? What are the systems you put in place? How do you make sure you're connected with reality? Take that wherever you'd like to go, but I'm sure every leader listening is facing not as monumental, but similar challenges. Yeah, so one of the things I did when I became CEO was actually set out clearly just sort of three broad principles that I said, these are the hallmarks of what we should be doing as the foundation, and this is going to make us your operator right better. And the first, the anchor of everything is impact first, and impact measured in terms of lives saved and the opportunities provided for the poorest and neediest in the United States and around the world. And then the other two, which we can go back to, are a high integrity culture and that we need to operate as one global foundation, not a set of silos. Now that impact first lens, that putting it on the human beings actually is a critical actor because one of the challenges for a philanthropy, particularly a very large philanthropy like ours, who puts out you know, $7 billion a year in grants, is you can easily get focused on the outputs. Did we make the grant? How much money did we disburse? Success is often in money disbursed or yes, we funded these eight organizations. And you're going, no, success needs to be about how was that money spent? Did it execute? Did it go to that last mile? Did it stay focused on the human connection? And so what you need to do, and it's a constant challenge. There's no, you don't like set it up and let it run and say, this is solved. Each new topic you come up, the current food security crisis that we're working on right now, you're looking to say, well, there needs to be some specific action around getting access to fertilizer for smallholder farmers across you know, Asia and Africa, because currently the fertilizer market is so globally disrupted, it's being hoarded by rich countries because you know, basically 60% of the world's fertilizer comes from uh, Russia and Belarus and is now under sanctions. Uh, how do you find routes to do that? You've got to then be very concrete and say, well, are there ways you can better use fertilizer? Can you do some pool procurement? What's the targeting around it? And then have the teams, because you're just giving the guidance, uh, the teams going up and say, You've got to be focused on that absolute outcome uh, that's going to generate the resource that actually has the concrete partnership uh, with who's going to be your alternative fertilizer producer or sales or intermediary. How is that going to reach the farmers? Uh, and again, I'm happy to use some health and COVID examples because we, we learned some tough lessons over the last couple of years as a world on the challenge of how you get vaccines to people who need them and other similar tools. But it's all about staying ruthlessly focused on the needs of the people and making sure you're interrogating that. Every question you ask always not just, did the grant get made? It's have you thought through yeah. these two, three, four steps yeah. about human impact at the end of it. And Mark, who would have known that 60% of the world's fertilizer product comes from Russia and Belarus, to your point now under um, you know, sanctions because of their activity, um, horrific activity in Ukraine. Uh, take that a little further. What else do you want our listeners and viewers to know about what's going on in the world? Are there other interesting statistics, things that if we knew more about, 
we might be more invested in or want to contribute or help? Are there other interesting insights you have around what's going on in the world that you'd like for people to be more attuned to, increase their maybe social acumen around? Yeah, well, I'd make two broad points, and actually I'll do a, a slightly shameless plug for a report that we put out, and we'll be putting out the latest version of it in two weeks, called the Goalkeepers Report, which is about you know, how the world is doing against these group of goals that actually the United Nations did set up as a successor to the Millennium Development Goals I talked about, the Sustainable Development Goals. They were launched in 2015. They were endorsed by every country on the planet, including the United States. Uh, and there are a set of goals around gender equality, poverty reduction, uh, health indicators, uh, financial inclusion. And what most people don't realize is how amazing the success was in the first two decades of the 21st century. That we reduced extreme poverty by over two thirds of the world. But there was hundreds and hundreds of millions of people across Africa, Asia, Latin America, came out of extreme poverty. We reduced child mortality by over 50%. That's under five people who die of preventable childhood diseases. You know, we got many, many hundreds of millions of kids into primary school who were not in primary school. There was amazing, and most people don't realize just how successful it was and how strong that engine was. And then the flip side is COVID has really been such a shock to the system when you come back and you cover COVID and then you uh, do the current food security crisis from the war, that that's kind of stalling right now, that we're not seeing the problem. We've had the first two years of setbacks and declines that we've had since the 1990s or 1980s. And so a lot of what we're focused on is first getting people believe in the possibility that it's actually not only can we do this, we have done it. The world's already done it. It's done amazing progress through key interventions in health and agriculture and some of the other areas we talk about. But right now, this is as bad a global crisis as we've had for many, many decades. And it's affecting everywhere on the planet. And it needs really concrete redoubled action uh, if we're not going to have it be much worse. So I'll, I'll try to stop preaching, but there's, you know, the excitement for people should be that this kind of progress does happen and is possible. The concern is we're at a very tricky moment right now where we need redouble investments in innovation and you know find new tools uh, to help us deal with the crises. Uh, Mark, it's a rare pleasure to have someone of your stature on this podcast. We interview a lot of very famous CEOs, but you are the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Would you remind our listeners and viewers some of the specific work that you all do on a daily basis, uh, both inside the US and around the world. Talk about, maybe take a little step further on some of the actionable things you've been able to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. So for context, as a foundation, you know, we're a foundation with the latest gift we've had from Bill and Melinda Gates, we have an endowment of $70 billion. We also get uh, regular support from Warren Buffett, who's been amazingly generous. He gives us annual support. And this year, his support was $3.2 billion. And we have to spend it all in that year. That means calendar-wise, we give out around you know, 6 to $7 billion a year. And we're now on a trajectory to expand that to $9 billion a year by 2026. And what we try and do is look for areas and interventions and spaces where philanthropic capital can actually take risks, do things that either the private sector or the public sector cannot or shouldn't do. So we don't want to do anything that displaces, we're kind of a, trying to be a catalyst and we'll take that in areas. So in the US, our biggest area of focus is education. And we will invest heavily, and I've just had a set of meetings this week around it in, we think there's an amazing opportunity with 
the setbacks that happened in U.S. education. And there's a report that just came out that showed the learning loss of the last two years from uh, COVID is actually the first setbacks in U.S. education attainment since those measurements began. But we can use new digital curricula tools. Uh, and we're working on some very interesting ones in that where we work with some private sector partners and incentivize them to focus on you know, black, brown, and low-income uh, students who are the most affected. Globally, we would work on something like HIV, TB, and malaria, the three diseases which still kill the most people on the planet every year. And there's a big institution called the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, which was set up in 2000 uh, at the UN. Uh, the, the Gates Foundation was a core fund of it. It brings together governments, private sector partners. It saved 50 million lives. Uh, over a literally measurable 50 million lives through things like getting malaria bed nets out, helping uh, procure an antiretrovirals uh, for HIV patients, getting better TB treatment. So you're always looking for things that will pull together public and private sectors in partnership, but the philanthropic money we have can catalyze some of the changes in the energy. And we do that in a couple of other areas. So health globally is our biggest area especially in infectious diseases, which still kill most of the world's poorest people. In the US, it's primarily education. And then globally, we also work in agricultural development and the food security. That's because that has such a direct impact on people. Mark, I think most of us know as the Gates Foundation, of course, as the, uh, the Gates' personal wealth put in to seed this. But obviously, the press reports have been that you know, they've leaned on a lot of billionaires around the world as, as part of it. Was it the Giving Pledge? Is that the name of it? What was the name? The Giving Pledge. Yeah. And can you talk about how that's going? How is How successful has the Gates challenge to people of, you know, similar unfathomable network, net worth? How, does that, how has that continued to work positively to grow the endowment of the Gates Foundation? Yeah, well, I want to be very clear. It's Bill and Melinda uh, and also Warren Buffett. That his name may not be on our foundation, but you know it's his very generous resources uh, that also help us fund it. And it is the three of them who jointly funded the Giving Pledge together. Thank you. So we believe, and we've learned from our work, that it's critically important that a new generation of philanthropists give now and give it scale to needs. Both, uh, you know, Warren and Bill and Melinda are clear that their resources are not for life. And you know, the the uh, Gates Foundation will do itself out of business within 20 years of the death of the last of those three. That we will spend down our endowment and leave the problems of the future to the future. It's a call to action for philanthropy now. Now the giving pledge is requirement say to sign up to it, you need to be at least a billionaire, a dollar billionaire, and you need to commit to at least half of your resources going to charity. It doesn't actually put a timeline on it. It can be in your will. It could be for the long term. But that's the criteria. It's been very successful in terms of recruiting people. There are over 200 uh, people from around the world who are now signed up. Their sign-up letters are actually on the Giving Pledge website. They're all public. Uh, and I recommend people look at them. Some of them are very moving and thoughtful and sincere. And so in that lens, it's been a great success. And there's some really good examples. I think one of the challenges that we still have, and this is where the scale of giving that uh, Bill and Melinda and Warren are able to do and that we're able to process through the Gates Foundation is unusual. There's still most, I, mean, I think most individuals, people find it difficult to give at scale. When it's 50% of these really, really enormous fortunes, uh, many of them we think could 
uh, be giving much more now in real time. And this is a moment where the needs are particularly acute. And that's one of the reasons why we recently announced uh, an extra, or Bill and Melinda recently announced an extra 20 billion contribution to our endowment, and that we would increase our spending from six to nine billion a year, because we were trying to send a signal that the challenges where the world is facing today demand a broader action from other philanthropists. Mark, did I hear you correct earlier when you said that the, the Gates Foundation will cease to exist when Warren Buffett and both of the Gates pass? Yeah, or we will wind ourselves down over two decades. So it'll be 20 years because, you know, with an endowment, the size of our endowment, and which may still grow in the future, uh, that takes a while. But yes, the point is we are not going to be like the Ford Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation or the other ones you hear, which are in perpetuity. They have a permanent endowment and they expect to be in existence, you know, forever. We are very clearly, Bill, Melinda, and Warren said, our resources should focus on the problems of today. We want our foundation to be focused on problems that we have identified, that we are supporting, and we think future philanthropists and future generations should take care of the problems for tomorrow. So yes, we will cease to exist uh, two decades after the last of them passes. Mark, what would the world find interesting to know about Warren Buffett? Uh, well, the best advice Warren gave me, and this is uh, I went to have lunch with him in Omaha, after I got uh, selected as uh, CEO. And you know, the, the best advice he gave me, which I use all the time at the foundation was, remember your ABCs. He said, all institutions are subject to, a big institutions are subject to ABCs, but you as the world's largest philanthropic foundation are much more attuned to it. And by ABCs, he has three things, arrogance, bureaucracy, and complacency. Hmm that because we work on mission-driven issues, it's easy to persuade yourself we're doing the right thing. That's, that's where the arrogance goes, or that, hey, the work we've done is okay already, it's complacent. And then the bureaucracy, do we put in place process and procedures? And I constantly am pushing that. You know, he's very clear he doesn't have the expertise and doesn't want to have the expertise. He does not want to know deeply what's happening in HIV AIDS or agricultural development. He trusts the foundation to do that. He says, but I want to make sure my marginal resource is being used as effectively as possible. And that means you need to be careful about your overhead, your expenditure, your headcount. He's a great uh, analysis that he will look at your headcount ratios. He'll look at exactly the way he does it with the businesses Berkshire Hathaway invests in. But you know, Warren and uh, teaching me my ABCs is uh, something I literally think about every day. Mark, share the same with Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, having obviously worked with him now for a long time and been uh, close with them, what would you like the world to know about both, maybe separately even, Bill and Melinda? Uh, yeah, well, so the thing that people tend to forget is they're actually, you know, they're both engineers by background. Um, uh, that's how, you know, Melinda came out of uh, Duke University and computer science there and joined Microsoft. And that engineering focus has been really, I think it's one of the things that become very distinctive for the foundation is they are both very focused when I talk about outcomes. It's like, what's the measurable thing? Well, I was in a meeting with uh, both of them this week about uh, we're trying to work on a new self-injected, so a woman could take it, contraceptive, that we think would be incredibly useful for young women uh, to get access to family planning across the developing world. On that, again, the focus on the price of the product is that usable for uh, the women in case. What facilities might you get to 
uh, give there? What kind of private pharmacies or public facilities? What would the supply chain look like? Their attention to detail and focus in a space that often just you know does these big diffuse things is a huge thing, and it's a huge common uh, thread between the two of them. In terms of the sort of separate, then your bill uh, will be a relentless focuser down into the nth degree of uh, whatever we're talking about. So it might be if we're looking at an improved crop or an improved uh, bed net or an area, you'll want to know the chemical composition of it, you know, the uh, the manufacturing structure, you know, how it's going to be distributed. Melinda will think a little bit more naturally about how some of the systems and partners we have to uh, bring along will do it. You know, which ecosystem do you need? To, do you need these three governments to be supporting? Do you, do you need these four civil society? But it ends up being very complementary in terms yeah. of their guidance. Yeah. And as you said, obviously it's been a challenging uh, year and a half because they've went through a, a painful divorce while rem remaining co-chairs of the foundation. And that's been uh, great to work with them and sort of try and build that muscle of what it means now to be somewhat more institutional because we also have been building a new board as part of that that they are still co-chairs of but um you know, over the last year we've uh, sort of shifted the way in which we operate uh, and in which they give some of the guidance uh, and it's a more institutionalized somewhat less personalized approach Mark, you obviously have the coolest job on the planet <laughs> and I know it's not without challenge and uh, an impact. Where does someone go after they've become the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, of course, with Warren Buffett being a part? I mean, obviously you're, you're very much engaged in your work there. What does the future hold for you? Yeah, uh, the honest answer is I have no idea. Hmm. Um, I'm waiting, as I told you, a lot of my career has been very serendipitous and I'm assuming Serendipity will uh, come at the right time. I'm in no hurry to leave. I do think it's an amazing job and opportunity. And the fact that the challenges that I described are so huge right now, the privilege of being able to be part of an institution that is able to work on these issues. The, the mission that uh, drives us, it's actually carved on our headquarters that I'm sitting in right now, if you ever get a chance to visit us, is every person deserves the chance to a healthy and productive life. And it's a core and simple vision. It's very inspiring. Uh, but then you have to turn that into those measurable outcomes. Um, and yeah, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing and what comes next will come next at the right moment, but I have, I have no plans and no idea. Such a valuable reminder that no matter how intentional and deliberate we need to be to take control of our own careers, not give them up to somebody else, there is a level of serendipity and timing that hopefully we're listening and prepared for, right? Uh, I think I, I, you read this quote all the time that the best luck is kind of the luck you create yourself in terms of your network, your reputation, your brand, your trustworthiness, and also being at the right place in the right time. Mark Sisman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, also including Warren Buffett. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you for your time today. Great. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>